0: You're listening to the Light Programme on the Whole Fast Network. I'm Jack McInroy, and my guest is the crime author, Nicholas Obregon. Welcome to the programme, Nick. Hello, Jack. Nick's latest book, Unknown Mail, is available now in paperback from Penguin. It's the third in the Inspector Owata series, which started in 2017 with Blue Light Yokohama and was followed by Sins as Scarlet. Unknown Mail finds Inspector Owata back in his native Japan, investigating the murder of a Western girl in the run-up to the Olympic Games. There's also a detective from London who has her own, if you'll excuse the very morbid pun, skeletons in the closet. A man who's abducting and murdering sex workers and the usual turmoil of the Tokyo police's internal politics. Nick is a good friend of mine, and we discussed his first two books, as well as Growing Up Between London and Madrid and Moving to LA, on episode 165 of my other podcast, South London Hardcore. You can find that at holdfastnetwork.com or on your podcast app of choice. Nick, I'm curious about how you set out writing an Iwata book. Three books into the series, there are things in common. They have sort of structural similarities. They're stylistically consistent. Uh, They're all in a sort of similarly dark tone. But the three books are very distinct. They're not kind of killer of the week uh, type books. What did you set out to do with Unknown Mail? that was different to what you were doing in the first two books and sort of maybe what was the same as well?
1: Implication there, Jack, being that I knew what I was doing, of course. <laughs> um, the starting point was that I knew from the very beginning when I even, when I got an agent that like I pitched it as a trilogy yeah. and said out loud, that was really easy. Right. Cause I was like, Oh, there'll just be three stories. It'll all come full circle. And, uh, and you know, Bob's your uncle in practice when it came to actually making three stories with the same character who has to have a consistent kind of arc who has to be the same person but also grow across what is a 10-year period in the three books um I really didn't want it to be monster of the week and so the first novel I already had in the bag um the second novel I wanted specifically to make it a story about um a place which is It's set between Southern California and the Mexican, the Northern Mexican territories. And then so then this third book, I thought, well, the first book is set in Japan. The second book is set in America. It has to go back to the source. It has to go back to Japan, even though he doesn't want to. And so it was a bit floaty for me. And I thought, I want to get into... Uh, a classic a kind of like outwardly classic story with Iwata where he's investigating a serial killer in in the kind of standard garden variety mold but I'm not interested in like grizzly calling cards I'm not interested in some like lurid you know imaginative way of killing people I don't care about that stuff we've been scraping the barrel and that for like years as it is mm-hmm. what what scares me is the unknown right R- roll credits um <laughs> what scares me is when you look at a person and you can never know what kind of lies beneath that they could be good they could be bad and so I wanted to get into a guy who looked normal who was absolutely normal like Mr. Gray on the outside but internally had something else going on and I spoke to um, some uh, criminologists and some um, forensic psychiatrists And they all said a similar thing. This is for another project I'm doing, which I can't talk about, sorry it's a vague tweet. But (laughs) they all said the same thing, which is, look, this idea that serial killers are playing cat and mouse with the police, that they're like leaving calling cards, that they're talking to the police. Yeah, it happens now and then, but basically it doesn't really because murdering people is a personal thing to these men. It's personal. And that phrase there got to me. So that was kind of where Iwata book three Started life was a plain man doing very unplain things for his own reasons.
0: So that's Mr. Sato, of course. We find yes. that out early on, don't we? That's not a spoiler. No it's spoilers. No uh... spoilers. Yeah, it's not. Well, I don't know, man. There's, I'm a very very uh, sensitive uh, viewer and reader. <laughs> I don't, you know, I don't like to know anything. What do you mean it's set in the Middle Ages, that kind of thing? Right, 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 You've right. ruined it. You've ruined it for me. <laughs> yeah. The kind of killer of the week, monster of the week thing. The other mm-hmm. side of that is that the. T- the detective or whatever character it is, you know, Columbo or Mm. Quincy, or even ones in like, I imagine people like characters like Alex Cross and that, although I've not read those. Mm. Um, Those characters, I imagine, don't change very much. They don't necessarily have a lot of backstory going on, or Mm. I shouldn't say backstory, their own story. Whereas uh, Iwata, um, Mm. his arc is as big as this is maybe one thing that surprised me because obviously um we've been friends a long time I mm. knew before the book was done i assu- i didn't really when you started telling me about it, i didn't really realize that i mean his own personal arcs are arguably the biggest parts of each of the books aren't they
1: yeah yeah um Well, just to clarify, to go back to something you said earlier, the book is not set in the Middle Ages, just in case people are confused (laughs) by that. I was talking about something else. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's a fair point, Jack. Look, I think, um, oh God, I can't remember his name now. Look, someone back in the day, French and very clever, said uh, the mediocre detective story, occurs in the world of the detective the superior detective story the mystery occurs in the detective himself and like that had always kind of been knocking around my head before I started writing Iwata just because like I'm not so interested in the what obviously the what is important that's why somebody's paying 10 quid 15 quid for a book Hmm. but at the same time I think really what drives people to push a book into someone's hand and say listen you've got to read this this is great is character as human beings and for me i always it was always important to me to to see a man a human being carrying out these investigations but also these investigations impacting him as a human being rather than just like like much as i love columbo and i really really do columbo as you say never changes columbo is who he is it's the same as james bond they exist because they are this um iwata there was never going to be 42 different detective iwata stories there's only going to be like three four because he can't that arc can't go on forever there reaches a point you reach a point where he says i don't want to do this anymore this is too hard so yeah humanity you know not not to get sort of too philosophical about it but humanity in crime novels i think doesn't always marry up but i think the best ones do have that humanity. Like, I think people still talk about The Silence of the Lambs today, not because of what Clarice Starling is investigating outwardly, but because of what she has to investigate inwardly. And I think that's, you know, not to compare my book to that because it's not as good as that, but that was the kind of general thinking.
0: So the book came out in hardback in 2019 and it's set on the eve of the 2020 Tokyo Olympics (laughs) I mean (laughs) yes it is (laughs) so which is you know I'm sure we all had a good chuckle about that the fact they've not happened yet but it did occur to me as sort of I was reading it and I thought okay that's unfortunate for Nick um but it's only for a short window because once they happen anyone that reads it from August 2021 onwards it won't even occur to them that anything is amiss will it
1: Mm. yeah I mean look I I am not, <laughs> without stating the obvious too much, I am not the biggest loser in the the, the global pandemic, but it was extremely irritating, right? I will say that. Mm. Um, I did kind of go over the possibility with my editor of just removing all mention of um, the word 2020, you know? But mm. th- th- it's almost like then you make it a thing, right? Because then if we just say the games... Yeah. Everybody, every, I don't know, because then I have to write COVID into the story, right? Yeah, then yeah, I have yeah. to get into this like steampunk future where COVID has already happened, but Inspector the is already vaccinated and he, <laughs> everybody's wearing a mask. And I don't know. So in the end, I was just like, look, let, let's just get slightly sci-fi just a little bit. And and I think you're right. I don't think it really... It, it's not going to intrude on the story. Like, all stories require some suspension of disbelief anyway. We all know it's, like, naff and made up. So if someone's like, "Oh, but actually COVID happened, well, it's like, yeah, it did. So well done. Observant.
0: Yeah, it's funny, though. You've got a line in there. Um, well, well oh, one no. of the... No, uh, <laughs> there's a murder suspect. Is this is almost the other... This is the other side of it where you've been... Uh... Almost a bit of a Nostradamus. No, not really, but there's a murder suspect who is in a surgical mask, which you refer to as being like you'd you say ubiquitous, but someone along those lines. Mm. Um, and that's obviously just a thing where in East Asia people wear a lot of face masks, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, um, you know, pre-COVID. Um, look, I can't give you statistics, but I mean, if you get on any Yamanote line train, in, you know, in Tokyo three years ago you know, let's say half of the people are wearing a mask anyway, um, or like a third. And the minute there's any kind of um pandemic, whether it's this or whether it was, you know, SARS or anything that's happened in the last 20 years, the government turns around and says, this is what's happening. And there's 99.9999% um mask usage, because that's just how it works. There. If the government says do the thing, people say, right, yeah, there's a pandemic, better wear a mask unlike where i live in america where it's a debate (laughs) so um yeah so it's not like it 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 didn't really change anything narratively for me um like i was thinking if covid had existed in the story am i going to get into like social distancing and the rest of it how does crime scene Mm -hmm. investigation work and so on and so forth i just thought look I, i let's just pretend it's not a thing there's been a lot
0: of talk about, all um, oh, when, when the movies are back, it'll just be all films about COVID and, you know, mm. it'll be storyline and everything. But I don't know, my my gut kind of says that we, it'll be a thing to sort of forget in a way, in fiction. It won't serve a huge, unless it's, you know, there are things where it will fuel certain stories. Mm. But I don't really see the why you'd sort of squeeze it into every story. What does your gut say about COVID and fiction in the sort of years to come?
1: Um well I think that on the one hand I think that art and creativity are ways of trying to understand um really hard scary things that's something we've been doing you know from day like why do the mayans point up at a solar eclipse and say oh that's because we've displeased this god i mean they don't know but it feels better to try and understand it even if you don't have the knowledge than to just go shit we don't know right it's scary so on the one hand, I do think there is something to be said of, you know, COVID diaries and all of that, which you are seeing now in, uh, in literature and Netflix and the rest of it. But, I mean, I think the other side of this is, um, as you say, I think, you know, literature, um, movies, TV is an escape from the day-to-day. And I think if you're just giving people what they already have, then even if it's sublime, it doesn't provide an outlet. It doesn't provide that escape, right? So, I mean, I don't know. After 9-11 happened, let's say, how many 9-11 movies were there? Like two, three? Yeah,
0: right. You right.
1: know, you look at, um, like, let's say Spain. I mean, I know we touched on this the last time uh, we spoke, but you look, at, you look at a country like Spain where, you know, fascism is still a conversation today somehow, right? Even though they're finding, you know... you know, they're finding bones down wells and, and mass graves to this day because of fascism, because of Franco. To this day, it's still happening, right? But Spain walks and talks like a normal European country, right? But on the one hand, it's only like back in the 70s that Franco was still alive doing these things. So you would think fascism would be a conversation because of Franco to this day. People don't want to talk about it. It's not that it's taboo. It's not that you can't talk about it. They're just knackered of the subject. So I think yeah there will be some look to answer your question yeah there will be some stories about covid but i think the other side of it is that there comes a point when something is so universal that it's just it's just like it's just blank paper you know what i mean there comes a yeah, point yeah, where yeah. it's like if you if you read like amateur fiction and the guy is describing what the sun looks like don't describe the sun you know what i mean like uh-huh. just move on to the next thing so that's that's uh that's my take on covid i will not be writing any covid stories
0: no I, I also heard it referred to on a podcast I forget where um as being like the biggest global event of you know most of our lifetimes but also not really having any central events but like yeah, that's right not it's
1: not dramatic is it one of the kind of phrases you often hear in these like big seminal moments throughout life is where were you when Kennedy was shot or wherever right um I remember being in Liverpool Street Station and on that big video drone screen, uh, the words Michael Jackson dead just flashed up. And I was with a big group of my friends. We just come from a a football match and we all just stopped. Everybody just stopped. Everybody in the station stopped and started talking to each other, which if you're not from London, it's not a regular occurrence. (laughs) Where were you when that moment? you know, happened while well, I was in Liverpool Street Station. With Covid, where were you? Well, you were at home. We were all at home. We were mm-hmm. all doing the thing. Like you say, there was no, like, central moment. And I think we as humans have been telling stories since, you know, cave paintings, you know, like, since Neanderthals were splitting reeds of grass and making little tunes as, like, little flutes to entertain kids, right? Like, we tell stories. That's what we do. That's our way of understanding stuff. And the way you have to tell those stories is by saying, I don't know, today I saw a saber-toothed tiger. It has to be something fantastical. And if it's just there was a big illness, a bunch of us died, we all stayed at home and just waited the thing out. Mm. It, it's it's not as much of a story as like, you know, Jack who went outside of his cottage and then went up the beanstalk and then did the fancy. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. I just think it doesn't lend itself to to a story because what you're left with is oh this is now how i feel about my life after having to you know i've been stuck in my bedroom for a year and a half it's it, it's just reflection it's rumination it's not
0: yeah maybe you get um i mean you can express that in um things like music and poetry and paintings mm. and whatnot maybe not in long form storytelling so much you know
1: right yeah you need to go somewhere in a story is basically my point so going back to your book nick
0: Yes. Um, well, first of all, going to another book. I recently read a book called The Vore by Brian Catling. It's a uh, historical fantasy novel. It's like okay. a historical fiction with a big fantasy element. Really enjoyed it. We talked about it on South London Hardcore. And uh, well, anyway, but there's a moment in it where it's just like this sort of uh, small moment in it where it's revealed like anecdotally, if I remember correctly, that a man has deliberately blinded his children so that he can get more money when he sends them out begging. Um, and it's a moment that it's just a, sm- a small moment, but it succeeded in <laughs> ups- upsetting me. <laughs> and also... Sorry, just-
1: sorry, 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 it's a bit, mu- it's
0: a bit much. Of- <laughs> <laughs> it is, but wait until wait you hear the question. Um, but like, it also sort of, I guess the point is that wherever you turn in this world that the author had created, there was unspeakable horror. Mm. And... You've you have a few moments along those lines, right? I'm thinking <laughs> particularly of there's a detail from one of the characters' North Korean childhoods, mm, right? Yes, or childhood even. Um, I know what you're. That, yeah, exactly. So, well, I won't spoil that for people, even though it's only again, it's only like an anecdotal detail. But I just wonder: is that? Um, I mean, is that a, how? To what extent is that a literary device, or is that your kind of worldview that just everything is so grim? <laughs> see what i mean
1: yeah no i do um that's you know not to be patronizing but that's a good question (laughs) Um, well okay so specifically that north korean character um i was gonna i was gonna i was sort of playing with the idea of maybe like a an inspector you had that short story where he goes to north korea and you know for reasons 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 has to has to do a case there um I didn't end up doing that because it was really hard and naff and didn't make sense. But what I was left over with was this um, North Korean spy character who just wouldn't leave me alone. And he ended up kind of forcing his way into the novel. And so I did a lot of reading um, nonfiction books of escapees from North Korea who would then write fantastic books such as um, ones called Nothing to Envy, which is that the mantra that's constantly repeated there there's nothing to envy in the outside world. Um and so that specific anecdote which again we're vague tweeting here but is is a is a is a true thing that a real guy went through. So yeah. sometimes it's just literally something is so horrific or so fantastic or so amusing what, you know whatever the adjective is that it just demands a place in the story somehow right which is you know it's kind of the literary equivalent of like oh my mate at work told me that you'll never believe this right um (laughs) but to answer your question in terms of like um kind of an outlook on life being grim in this specific novel in unknown male it's almost like the more horrific that mr sato becomes on the inside the more kind of perfunctory and normal and every day he looks on the outside and so, that banality of evil, that, that phrase we always hear, I wanted to make a character. So, you know, the banality of evil, I wanted that phrase to have legs and hopes and dreams and the rest of it. In terms of like an outlook on life, I think it's important to kind of explore extremes within literature so that we can kind of take a view in our own mediocrity on that, if that makes sense. You know what I mean? Like, we're, we're never going to meet a guy who does certain things with rats right in, in, in this way in order to survive. But you might then start thinking about that one guy down the road who told you this other thing, you know what I mean? And I think just Mm. if, if I don't have great literary aspirations, I don't think I'm going to be remembered through the ages, but what would give me great pleasure is simply if someone were to read my book and then like Wikipedia something, right. Or to then have off branch thoughts about X, Y, Z. So In terms of an outlook on life, like, yeah, I think the world is extremely grim. Um, And I think literature is one way in which we can explore that momentarily without getting too depressed, without getting too kind of like hopeless um, and get something back from it and then carry on with our lives and and, and try and ignore it for a little bit, if that makes sense.
0: So this is not really related to your book at all, Nick, but you're you're the first novelist I'm speaking to since I came across this quote, right? So I uh, do you know the comedian Norm MacDonald? Yeah. Yeah. So if anyone listening doesn't know, and I'm sure many won't, he's a really dry stand-up comedian from the sort of nineties to present, really. He wrote a memoir, a fictionalized memoir, which is a masterpiece, I would say. Really, really fantastic. Uh but brilliant, brilliant comedian. But so he's as I say, he's written at least one book. Um And he he often tweets things and then deletes all of his tweets afterwards. So he wrote this, right? I just wanted to kind of get your take on it. Mm. Today was very tough. I'm writing a novel and finally finished the first draft at 800 pages. After a full day of agonizing, I'm scrapping it. There is a peculiar pain that comes with waste, waste of time. Anything else you can get back. But this time, this time, gone. I began close to eight months ago and worked at least two hours a day, each and every day. This was my promise to myself. The typical day would usually be seven or eight hours. It came easily, like it was coming not from me, but outside of me. I suppose that magic feeling should have been a clue. It can never be easy, unless there is a flaw alive and metastasizing. It was false. When you read words so empty of anything but tricks, you are humiliated. But it's okay, it was never published. But the time, the time.
1: Love the, I love your reading of that. Well, um, so there's
0: a few things in there. I mean, I certainly related to um, that feeling of the time about wasting the time. I think mm. coming to terms with the fact that you will waste enormous amounts of time as a writer mm. is that is part of it. You just that you're always going to waste time, and you can eat. Mm. You know, sometimes you can go no, you know, maybe a better writer, or I could use this in that, or whatever. Mm. But for me the key was coming to terms with it's just part of it that you're gonna
1: yeah
0: you build a house and then it gets bulldozed the next day
1: yeah 100 percent look i think uh you know not to get into a twitter spat with mcdonald but um <laughs> uh, look i think yeah n- no like esoteric oh yeah but you know all writing is good writing, blah blah blah, because you go like you know, not all writing is good writing. <laughs> I've seen enough of it to know that. Um, but I do think that if you end up like jettisoning, jettisoning a load of um, your prose, you shouldn't just fucking delete that, man. Like y- you need to, you need to, yeah, remove it from your manuscript, but keep a hold of it because there will be whole characters, there will be whole segments in there that do work. Um, for your next thing or the thing after that or the thing after that like so if, if you've written an entire novel right um if you put eight or nine months into this entire novel and that writing outside of yourself thing that he's talking about that's exactly what i felt in my first novel he's talking about inspiration right you're inspired mm. when you feel that for the first time as i did with my first book it's the one and only time i've ever felt that where it's just flowed um that's intoxicating that feeling you feel as if you're righteous you feel as if this is what i should be doing so i completely get that if you get to the end of this and then you just delete the novel you fucked it up right if you spent eight or nine months to something that you say at the end of it this isn't good enough then yeah you were inspired but you weren't honest with yourself because at the end of the day like if you spent eight or nine months without asking yourself is this good because i like it because it's me Or is this good because objectively it's good? That has to be asked about every single sentence you put down, right? Not about, I'll ask myself that at the end. Because that's essentially the difference between doing this for a living and doing this for a hobby. If you're doing this for a living and if you're getting paid to do it, at the end of it, your editor will turn around and there'll be no filter in the feedback, right? It'll be like, go off and do it again. There comes a point where an editor will just simply say, I'm not even going to give you feedback on this this is just wrong you need to go off and and rework it with more xyz you know what i mean so i i i think that he is hitting on something that i feel you know, personally attacked by it, on the one hand and mm. i think on the other hand you you shouldn't just simply delete the thing um
0: yeah i mean as i just to be clear like he deletes his tweets wherever he deleted the novel he's referred to right. him cracking okay. it which I don't imagine he deleted it. I mean, I imagine he's sort of... Right. You just move on to a new... You put it in the archive folder, don't right, you? Right, right,
1: right. Yeah. And, um, but there was... I mean, but there I is guess, definitely something to what he's saying. Yeah,
0: 100%. The other thing he says, though, the other thing I was a bit more dubious about was what some of you touched on. is where he... He says it came easily. Um, and that should have been a clue that it should never be easy. And I don't, mm. that's that's... I don't know sometimes things do like you know Paul Schrader wrote mm. Taxi Driver in 15 days it right, just right, flowed right. he'd lived it obviously he'd lived yeah. it um in very in various ways and then it flowed out of him we got it down right. and then there's other times where I'm sure Paul Schrader ground something out over a year but mm. the other one came easy and one didn't doesn't make it invalid does it it isn't every time something comes easy it's it's not good but that sort of brings me on to something that you do so well in your books one of the things you do really well is that you have these three or four stories and you manage to bring them all together not just bring them together but it's the way they all they all peak at the right time so Mm. they all and not just the stories but the themes inside of them the kind Mm. of emotional arcs it all comes together exactly like as you know you're like conducting an orchestra you know um and so well done um, but <laughs> but that is that is something that probably as much inspiration as you have that is work isn't
1: it 100% look in those 15 days that you're talking about for taxi driver right let's say 70% of that flows because he's lived it or because he's inspired or simply because he knows he's onto something good when you know you're onto something good you don't need external validation because you know this is popping off the page so there's that. If it's easy, it can't be good. I mean, you know, I, I don't know. That's like saying, have you ever seen Roger Federer hit a backhand up the line, right? Yeah, right. For him, it is easy. For him, mm. it is easy. But or why like, is someone it easy? like Dylan
0: tossing exactly. off. Exactly. You know, Dylan tossing off a song in 15 minutes and it's the, exactly. one of the greatest songs ever written.
1: You know, for him, it is easy. Um, But then how did he get to that point? It, it, are we talking about some, you know, God-given innate gift? are we talking about a lifetime of practice are we talking about a little bit of column a a little bit of column b who can say where that x factor comes from i think you can't speak for writers right any more than someone can say the phrase well as a mother i think that x y z it's just it's meaningless so can it be easy yeah it can be easy can can it always be easy well probably not then when it's getting a bit suspect there has to be some work along with the easiness right if there wasn't it wouldn't take him Eight months. You know, to my yeah, mind, right, right, eight right. months for one draft is pretty good going. You know, and people have said 800 to me. Eight hundred pages. Re- 800 page, you know, people have said to me repeatedly, wow, that's so quick that you've had uh, your first novel published in twenty seventeen, your second in twenty eighteen, your third in twenty nineteen. That's three in three years, that's crazy quick. And it did feel quite quick, but then again, I'm talking about the same character, right? Who's like donning the jacket again? So it was a lot easier to do that. Now, writing my fourth novel outside of the same character, it's taken me two years. It's, it's a lot harder to, you know, push a whole world up to stand up, you know. So can it be easy? Yeah, it can be easy. I don't think that necessarily means it has to be bad because some people are just really, really good. Right. Some people it just come to them mm-hmm. really easily. It doesn't to me. That's only ever happened to me once. Um, bringing together those themes that you're talking about, weaving that all together, you know, that starts out on a whiteboard literally as a diagram. You know, it can be something as like embarrassing as like one guy, you know, like let's say he's the color blue just being like the the theme of revenge. Right. So then that just that arrow kind of weaves across the whole whiteboard in the color blue. It doesn't even have a character name yet. But I'm already thinking about what is this character doing in the story? He's getting revenge. And that's that's how he exists before he's even a name and a place and stuff. I think people go the other way often, especially amateur writers, where they come up with oh, who does he vote for? What's his first pet called? You know, where did he have his first kiss? And all of these trivia questions, which is great. It's great to know your character. But what is he or her doing in the story? And if, if characters aren't doing anything, then, I mean, look, this is a tangent. But if characters aren't doing anything, then they just exist. And people already just exist. And now we've gone back to our point about, is it a journey? Is it going somewhere? Is it a story? Or is it just real life? And if it's just real life, we already have that.
0: But that's all we've got time for today. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Nick.
1: Thank you very much for having me, Jack.
0: Unknown Mail is available now in paperback, ebook, and audiobook. As are Blue Light, Yokohama, and Sins of Scarlet. And we always end the podcast, Nick, by asking guests who was the uh, most recent celebrity they spotted in the wild. I'll I'll go first. Give you a chance to think. I mean, mm. you live in Los Angeles. Yeah, Brian I, I Aloud, mean, so...
1: I've got a leg up here, haven't I? Yeah,
0: because mine is that I saw Will Self on Vauxhall Bridge.
1: <laughs> well, I, Can you I once beat saw, it? I once saw Stephen Fry on that same bridge.
0: Well, yeah, um go, But
1: that wasn't the last famous one. The last famous person I saw was fucking Harrison Ford. So,
0: wow! Come are. on!
1: Yeah, Where beat about, that? whereabouts was that? Uh, it was. It was basically uh, downtown. Um, he was wearing a hat that said like, it was like farmers group or something to do with farming he looked quite old and you know the whole thing in la is like if you see a f- famous person you just kind of like you don't make a big deal about because like obviously mm-hmm. you're an angelino so you don't want to make a big deal about it but with him as he went into the coffee shop i mean he seemed quite polite but even angelino's like fucking that's harrison Ford, that is well wow. so that's pretty exciting oh and i saw snoop dog on the freeway
0: nice